First Kings 19. I will read the first eight verses. It says, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked. And behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in that strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. A couple weeks ago, we looked at this passage verse by verse and kind of explained it. Today, I'm going to take a bigger picture view of how many of the things that happen here are then connected to what happens in the New Testament. As we read this, you could see that Elijah experiences what we might call today depression. So next week, we're going to talk about that some. And then the third week, we'll move on to talking about the call of Elisha at the end of this chapter. But let's open up this sermon with prayer. O Lord, we are in desperate need of you. Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. So may we hear you speaking to us this morning through your word, that we would hear the call of the shepherd and we would respond to your voice. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1999, Bruce Willis starred in the movie The Sixth Sense. And those of you who are older like me may remember that the story was enjoyable. It was suspenseful. And then when you saw the end, you wanted to watch it all over. Maybe some of you are smarter than I, but I didn't see what was coming. And the end was such a twist that I immediately wanted to watch the movie again. And once I knew what happened at the end, everything before it had new insight. It had a new importance, and it had a new value to the whole movie. The ending made sense of everything else. In some ways, the Bible is very much like that. Every single story in the Bible, whether it's in Genesis all the way to Malachi in the Old Testament, makes sense even in itself. But once Jesus has come, all of those stories now have new importance, new insight, new significance for us. Jesus clearly believed the Old Testament should be understood in relation to him. And he told the religious leaders in John 5.39, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. And Jesus was talking about the Old Testament, saying the Old Testament is about me when jesus died and rose again he had not yet fully revealed himself to his disciples and he was walking on the road to emmaus with two of his disciples and ironically enough they're talking to jesus not recognizing him and telling jesus all about this man named jesus who had just been in jerusalem 
And as they speak, Jesus then stops them and says in Luke 24, 25 through 27, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, we see the same idea that from Genesis to Malachi, all of the Old Testament has meaning and insight as we understand it in relation to Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus is really teaching a very important point to his disciples there in Luke 24. And that is that you can know a lot about the Bible and miss the main point. You can be active in church, know how to teach a Bible lesson, be a moral person, and still miss the whole point of the Bible. You know, the men Jesus was talking to that day, they knew Bible verses, but they didn't see how they were connected to the main thing, the main thing being God's work of redemption to save the world through his son, Jesus. I don't know what you think of when you think of the Bible, but the Bible is not primarily an instruction book with rules on how we should live. Yes, it does have rules, but that's not its primary emphasis. The Bible is not primarily an abstract philosophy or theology textbook to which we refer, though everything it says about philosophy and theology are true. The Bible is not primarily a love letter. Sometimes people describe it that way, though it does tell of God's love. The Bible is all about Jesus, how he created us, how he made us. And then when we sinned and destroyed his kingdom on earth, how he came to restore his kingdom and restore us. Thus, the commands and rules are there because they show us what he is like and how we can live in his kingdom. The philosophy and theology focus on Christ and the Bible's love is not some kind of generic love. It's love that is willing to die for those that are loved of a crucified and risen Messiah, that type of love. And so some people, as they talk about the Bible, they say very helpfully, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed and the Old is in the New revealed. So to understand all of the Bible, you need both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And before we dive into the main portion, I wonder, I wanted to give one more application. And that is, I wonder if you've ever heard someone pose this question. Well, do you think church, you think the sermon Sunday morning, should that be about giving a message to the lost? Or should that be a message to believers, to edify them? Is Sunday morning what we're doing now, is this about evangelism? Or is this about edification and i reject the whole question because i would say it's both if the preacher is preaching the bible and hopefully you'll only go to churches where they do that then they're going to be preaching about christ and what do unbelievers need they need christ what do believers need we need christ peter says it this way grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord and savior jesus christ we need to grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thus Charles Spurgeon once wrote, if you leave, leave Christ out of your sermon, oh my brothers, better that leave the pulpit altogether. If a man can preach a sermon without mentioning Christ's name in it, it ought to be his last. Certainly the last that any Christian ought to go hear him preach. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon? Then go home and never preach again until you have something 
worth preaching. And so as we look at 1 Kings 19, we're going to see it this morning in light of many things in the New Testament. And first, turn over to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, because there we're going to see that God's prophet is Jesus. He is the revealer. Mark 9, 2 through 8. Before we read, just remember the context. We read it. Elijah had just been on Mount Carmel. He had just been the agent of God's work and through which the sacrifices to Baal had not been consumed, and yet the sacrifices to God had been consumed. And then the prophets of Baal were killed. And yet what does Elijah do when Jezebel threatens his life? He fears, and he runs, and he flees. And yet then God graciously brought him food and drink, and sleep. And then he had him go on a 40-day fast in the wilderness to Mount Horeb. And we noted then that Horeb is another name for Sinai, where God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, where God had Moses also fast 40 days and nights. And then God appeared to Moses, and he appeared also to Elijah in a whisper. And all of that helps us understand what's going on in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were taking, talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. So Jesus goes up on this mountain like Moses and Elijah, and there he's transfigured, it says. His being is changed so that he is radiantly white so white that it says no person could make clothes like them and while he's there who appears moses and elijah the two greatest old testament prophets and peter then says it's good for them to see this so we should build three tents one for you jesus one for elijah one for moses now jesus doesn't actually directly answer peter but rather than a cloud comes and overshadows them. Well, what's going on? Why is this cloud coming down? Well, again, we have to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. This cloud came down twice before in the Old Testament. It came down first when Israel had left Egypt and they were in the wilderness and God had them build the tabernacle. And when it was being dedicated, the glory of God came down in the cloud. And then when they built the temple through Solomon, and they were dedicating the temple. What happened? The glory of God came down in a cloud. Well, what were the tabernacle? What were the temple? They were the place where God dwelled. So what is God signifying by having Jesus on the mountain with Moses and Elijah on either side and the glory cloud coming down? God is showing, this is where I dwell on earth. This is Emmanuel, God with you. And we don't just have to see that through Old Testament connections because we hear the voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Listen 
to him. When Jesus was baptized, the father said a similar thing. He said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now we'll see this more in our next section, but calling Jesus his son has importance both for all eternity, but also for understanding the Bible because both Adam and Israel are called God's son. We'll look at Luke chapter 4, which was read for us. And right before Luke 4, at the end of Luke 3, is a genealogy. And that genealogy goes from Jesus all the way back, and then it goes to Adam. And then it says of Adam, the son of God. God called Israel his son. And yet Adam and Israel, what did they both do? They failed to live up to the obedience that their father called them. You know, Jesus, in contrast, he's not just son by adoption. He's just not son by calling. Rather, Jesus always has been, always will be, and today is the son of a God. There's never been a time that Jesus did not exist. And yet, though he was the son of God eternally, he came on earth and lived as the son of God that Adam, Israel, and we should have, yet we failed to do. And that he's more than a son Because notice again what it says. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Why does he say listen to him? Well, this comes from Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18 is telling of how Israel should understand prophets. And then it says a prophet like Moses will come. Moses was the greatest prophet they'd ever seen. And then many probably thought, well, Elijah, he's this prophet to come. And yet, the prophet to come, we're being shown here, is Jesus. That is why they are to listen to him. By Jesus being on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and the Father saying, listen to him. He is saying, this is the final prophet. And so, all of this helps us understand when we see Elijah go up on the mountain and Elijah hear the voice, that's important, but it's pointing forward. It's foreshadowing of the final prophet who is going to come. And so Jesus is being shown to be the Son of God and the prophet. And yet, Jesus is slightly different. We've compared some ways that he's like Moses and Elijah, but there's a very significant way that what he experienced is different. Moses went up and he saw the glory of God pass by. Elijah went up on the mountain and he heard the whisper of God and saw the glory of God. Jesus went up and he was the glory of God. He did not see something else. He himself is the glory of God. When he was radiant, that was not something that God added to him, like you might go home and take off these clothes and add something else on or take something off. Jesus did not add to himself this. Rather, when he came in the flesh, he veiled this. He emptied himself of this. And on the mountain, it is being revealed what he has been for all eternity. Here, they are seeing Jesus for what he really is. And we are being shown through this a foretaste of what heaven will be like. Because in heaven, there will be no sun or moon. Because why? The Son of God is there, and his light will be the light for us all to see by. Now, what a word of encouragement this must have been 
for Jesus. In every gospel that includes this, it's very clearly after two things. It's right after Jesus says, I have to go to Jerusalem and die. And it's right after he then calls all of us to take up our cross and follow him. And then, what does the Father say in response to Jesus saying, I have to die? He doesn't say, yeah, I don't know. Is that really the plan we want to go with? Maybe there's another option. Maybe there's... No, he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. He's actually leading you in the truth. Do we so quickly forget that Jesus had a human side? I'm sure Jesus wrestled. Is this really the way? Is this what I'm called to do? Well, he tells his disciples, and then he is affirmed by his Father in heaven. Yes, though this is hard, this is the path. And yes, y'all should listen to him. And so Jesus is coming as the great prophet, the final one, revealing to us who God is and how we can know him. And we understand this better as we understand Elijah and as we understand Moses and all that comes before this. But we see this in other ways. Next, we see God's perfect one, the representative. Earlier, Jerry read for us Luke 4, but please turn there. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. So there's this clear connection between Moses and Elijah being prophets. Now there's a less clear connection with their days in the wilderness. Elijah did fast in the wilderness 40 days, and Moses spent 40 days fasting on the mountain, and Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. However, I think this one is more tied to Adam and Israel. I noted it earlier, but look again, Luke chapter 3, verse 38. Here we have this genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it ends, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of of God. And again, that may appear odd to us. Why does Luke put this genealogy? Well, he's doing this because he's showing that Jesus came to represent us. He came to be perfect where Adam failed. He came to be perfect where Israel failed. You know, in Exodus chapter 4, God has Moses go speak to Pharaoh and he says, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. God thought of Israel as his son. Or later, through the prophet Hosea, Hosea 11, 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And yet many of you know that verse in another context. It's Jesus' birth. We often read it around Christmas time. It's when Matthew and Mary, sorry, Mary and Joseph, Matthew wasn't there, Mary and Joseph are fleeing with Jesus to Egypt to avoid the wrath of Herod. And it says in Matthew 2.15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And so Matthew is drawing together, saying, yes, that prophecy in Hosea was to the people of Israel, but ultimately it pointed forward to Jesus who came to be the perfect Israel that they could never be and so there's this connection when it's talking about jesus being the son of god is saying yes son of god eternally but also son of god that adam failed to be son of god that israel failed to be and so we see this here and this really drives 
this whole temptation, because look at verse 3. What does the devil say in the first temptation? If you are the Son of God. Satan understands all this, and so he's getting to the heart of the issue. Are you God's son? And so Jesus is being tempted. Are you going to live faithfully to the Father or not? And we have to realize, though, these temptations are not accidents. Jesus didn't end up in the wilderness. He didn't take a wrong turn. Rather, notice what verse 1 says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. This was not a GPS error. This was not a mistake. Jesus knew that to be what God wanted him to be, he needed to be faithful where Israel had failed. And where did they fail? Most clearly in the wilderness. And this is the battle that's been going on since the beginning of time. What did the devil do? He sought to deceive Adam and Eve. And where does Jesus' ministry begin? With the devil coming to tempt Jesus. And yet, where Adam had every inclination to obey, Jesus has all the hardships that make it harder to obey. Adam was living in a garden with good food readily available. And yet, Jesus is wandering in a dry and forbidden, barren desert. Adam had a helpmate. He had a perfect world with no sin. And yet Jesus entered a sinful world full of the curse of sin. Thus Jesus entered a more difficult battleground under worse conditions and with a physically weakened state. And yet where Adam failed, where Israel failed, he will show himself to be perfect. And what's the first temptation? It's verse 3. Satan attacks with, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread now the issue here is not one of power and ability because jesus is later going to take five loaves two fish and he's going to multiply them to feed more than five thousand and so they are all satisfied so what's the temptation well the temptation is satan is whispering to jesus the reverse of what he whispered to eve to eve he said you will not surely die if you eat from this. But to Jesus, he says, you will surely die if you don't eat. But in both cases, the issue is not merely the belly. It was rather, can God be trusted? Does God provide everything I need? Or do I need to go outside his will to provide for myself what is needed? You can almost hear Satan saying, Jesus if you're God's beloved son, why are you starving in a wilderness? If he loved you, you wouldn't be out here. You'd be taken care of in a plush castle. But Jesus responds with a powerful rebuke. Verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone. You know, he's showing that true life is not just what we can taste, feel, touch, and see. True life comes from God and his word. If you really want to have life, Jesus says, him, you have, he's saying, you have to have God. Now, this temptation really hits me because when I sin, I'm prone to use all the excuses that Jesus didn't say. Well, I'm really sorry I did that, but I was really hungry. Or, yeah, I'm really sorry I blew up, but you have to realize I've, I've really, really had a hard day at work and I'm tired. And we make all these excuses saying, Yes, I sinned, but 
you've got to understand it's okay. There's these reasons. You know, God gave me a hard day, and since God gave me a hard day, it's okay if I respond sinfully. And yet Jesus buys into none of that. He fully obeys. He will take no rationalization or justification. So Satan attacks another time in verses 5 through 7. He offers Jesus the world's kingdom and glory if he'll worship him. And I think many times Christians read this and go, well, what's the big deal? Jesus is already the creator of the world. I mean, this isn't a temptation. I mean, why would he even be tempted by this? Well, Jesus is tempted by this because he knows to get the kingdom and the world back, he's going to have to die. And here he's being offered the kingdom, but without the sacrifice. Jesus learned early on, I think even by age 12, that the only way he could restore the kingdom was by his own death. He would have been aware of the prophecies like Isaiah 53, which say, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us And by his wounds, we are healed. And yet Satan whispers, it doesn't have to be by your wounds. You can just have the whole kingdom now. All you got to do is just bow down and worship me. And you could skip the cross. You could skip the suffering. Just bow to me. It's no big deal. And you'll be doing what your father wants anyways. And we're all, when we want something, we're prone to rationalize it. Well, we love each other. We're going to get married anyway, so what's the big deal? I know it's best for my family, so it's okay if I do this. I I know it's maybe illegal or not right, but it's for my family. Jesus, though, responds, you shall worship God and serve him alone. What Jesus is showing is that worship is more than an event. Worship is not just what we do in here. It's what you do when you leave from here and what you do during the day and throughout the week. Worship is what is in us and what we say we need to fully enjoy life. What do we truly desire? And true worship has the right desire, God's glory, and it does the right thing to obtain it. No shortcuts, even when it would be easier or less costly. No justifications, but rather the faithful obedience that trusts God's plan and wisdom, even when it calls us down the path of suffering. And the good news is all of us are not like Jesus. We're like Adam, we're like Israel, and we buy the justifications, we buy the rationalizations, and we sin, and yet Jesus was perfect in our place, and he died for us. And so Satan comes with a final temptation for now, Verses 9 through 11, he says, throw yourself down and the angels will catch you. That seems very pious. This is trusting God, isn't it? Just throw yourself. God's going to catch you. He even has a verse in the Psalms that the angels will catch you. However, this is presumption. There's a big difference between presumption and faith. Faith takes the promises of God and trusts them. Presumption forces God's hand. Some people even say this today. They say, well, look, if you 
proclaim something in Jesus' name, you can get whatever you want. But that's not faith. That's presuming upon God. The temptation occurs in life. Well, if I just say positive things in my life, God will cause them to happen. And yet Jesus says, don't put God to the test. You know, God does not have to respond to how we think he should act. Rather, he responds according to his character. And so as we come to this story in Luke, we understand it as we understand again what's come in the Old Testament before it. It's the whole point of today that to know Jesus, we actually have to know what came before him. And now we see a third theme that flows from this section, is that is God's people or remnant. So turn over to Romans chapter 11, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6. Romans chapter 11. Before we read those verses, we need to set the context. And the context is that throughout the Bible it becomes clear that God has a special and unique place for the people of Israel. You know, Jesus believed this, for he told the Samaritan woman, John 4.22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is declaring the Jews have a unique place in God's plan. You know, Jesus could have been anywhere, been born anywhere, at any time, to any family. But to fulfill God's plan... And to fulfill scripture, he was born of a virgin to a carpenter from Nazareth in the city of Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah. And during his ministry, there's an interesting story. It can be challenging to understand where a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and asks for help. And Jesus replies, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus saw his primary mission to Israel. Now he will end up helping this woman, and he also ends up helping Roman centurions and others, but he shows his primary focus was to Israel. When he helped the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion had such faith that Jesus marveled, and he said in Luke chapter 7, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying, yes, the kingdom is greater than just Israel. People from around the world will come. And then he says, while the sons of the kingdom, people of Israel, will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So though Jesus saw his primary mission was to Israel, he realized that the effects would be for all the earth. And so we see him drawing in both Jew and Gentile, though primarily focused on Israel. We even see that with his disciples. While he's on earth, he commissions them in Matthew 10 to go out, and he tells them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yet this all changes once Jesus dies, once Jesus dies and rises again. He then commissions his disciples to go to all the world. You probably know the Jesus' words, Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Or before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He no longer says, and don't go to the Gentiles. Now he's telling them, I am sending you out to all of the earth. And yet the early church really struggled with this. Early church was mainly Jewish believers, and they had a hard time accepting that these Gentiles can be welcomed in. Even the Apostle Peter and others did. And then God gave the Apostle Peter a special vision. You can read of it in Acts 10 and 11, where Peter is told to go to a Gentile named Cornelius. And Peter goes, and there God works through faith in Christ for these Gentiles to receive the Spirit as they did at Pentecost. And Peter goes, they're being saved as we are. And so the Gentiles are now part of God's people. But notice that rather than a new and distinct group, we Gentiles are grafted into the promises to Israel. As Paul writes in Galatians 3, 7 through 9, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So though none of us may be Jewish by blood, by faith we are sons of Abraham. We are spiritually Israel. Now I've taken a long path to get to Romans 11, 1 through 6. But here Paul is wrestling with these questions. He's wrestling with, well, is God saving Jews or Gentiles? And he made clear right before this, look at Romans 10, 12 through 13. He says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, for the Jews of that day, that was a radical statement. And they may be thinking, well, has God rejected us? Is he done with his plans for people who are physically Jewish? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what Paul answers in Romans 11, 1 through 6, where he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Here, specifically talking about Israel. And he says, by no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So, while God does now welcome people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, he's saying there's still a remnant of physical Jews who he's kept faithful to him. And Paul says, look, that's clear because I'm a Jew. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Yet notice the connection back to Elijah. In his time, God has always kept a faithful remnant by his grace. And by his grace is the key. Why is it that we trust Christ and others don't? Are we smarter? More spiritual? More moral? It 
It's because of God's grace. That is why any of us have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. It's not what we do. It's not that we have thought things out better or that we are in any way more intelligent. It's that God in his mercy has reached down in each of our lives and called us, changed us, molded us in his likeness. And God has kept a people for himself. And that should be a great comfort for us. God has always kept people faithful. It may not always seem like many. It may seem like Elijah We're the only ones left, or I'm the only one left. Everyone seems to be abandoning. And yet God, by his grace, keeps his people. It's also comforting as we look in, because Elijah, he was discouraged. As he looked in, he grew despondent. Yet there is hope. There's people beyond us by grace. Grace that can take people like Elijah and restore them to ministry. Take people like Paul and take them from hating God's people, to loving God and his people. Grace that can overcome the hardest heart, forgive the deepest sin, and produce the most change. And thus we're going to end today by singing of this great grace. Grace that occurred in the Old Testament during Elijah's day. Grace in Paul's day and grace for today. As I was looking over what songs to sing, the second and third stanzas of the song we're going to sing grace greater than all of our sin the words hit me verse two it says sin and despair like the sea waves cold threaten the soul with infinite loss and you may be there your situation in life your circumstances seem like this is beyond hope you're shivering under the coldness and yet then it says grace that is greater yes grace untold points to the refuge the mighty cross. There is refuge. There is hope. Your circumstances are not greater than God's grace. Your sin is not so habitual or so horrible or so deep that God's grace can't forgive and restore. Look to the mighty cross. The third stanza tells of this freely given grace for all who are longing to see his face. You know, Moses, he wanted to see God's face, but he could only see the after effects of God's glory. Moses could only hear a whisper, yet due to God's grace through Jesus Christ, we will see him face to face. First John 3 declares, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies him as he is pure. So what do you need to see God? Well, it's what Romans 10 tells us. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What do you confess? Jesus Christ. As Lord, and we've seen this morning, not just Lord, he's God's final prophet. He is God's perfect one, and he's ultimately the son of God. He died to take the punishment you deserve for your sin, and he rose again, defeating it, death, and the devil. So don't wait. One day it'll be too late. 
But now come and enjoy His amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, what wonderful grace You have lavished upon us. May we delight in that grace. Lord, keep us from clinging to our sin. Even now, Lord, there's a battle for many of us of wanting sin, wanting control of our life more, and yet Your way, Your plans are better. So would You stir all of our hearts to submit to You, to trust in Your Son and know the grace that welcomes us back to You. In your son's name we pray. Amen.